0: Well, this morning we are going to be in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 25, and it begins really a major section into the book of Exodus. Exodus 25 is a marking off point. A whole new section is coming in for us as we go through this book. And Exodus 25 is also the place where Bible reading plans go to die. Because this is the part of Exodus where our eyes will start to glaze over. It's the part of Exodus where we're tempted to be like one of the commentaries that I have on my shelf that just wants to skip this section and go straight to chapter 32 through 34, you know, the the incident of the golden calf, get some action in there. Because so far in Exodus, it's been kind of exciting, I think, full of action and intrigue. And there's the burning bush. There is uh, the Ten Plagues, the Red Sea, there is uh, the Ten Commandments. There's even, where we left off in chapter 24, there is the ratifying of the covenant. God is saying, you are my people, that you may come and worship me in chapter 24. Now, if Exodus ended right there in chapter 24, if the curtain fell right there in chapter 24, we'd kind of be satisfied. Uh, The people are delivered. Uh, Moses is going up onto the mountain to be with God for 40 days. Instead, we're subject to chapter after chapter after chapter of painstaking details concerning the tabernacle. It only took, if you think about it, one chapter to talk about 80 years of Moses' life. A Less than one chapter to give us the Ten Commandments. And yet here God will be giving us 13 chapters about building plans. And some of it is very repetitive, as we'll find out. It's been said that while it took God only six days to create the world... It took him 40 days to explain to Moses how to build the tabernacle. So why so many chapters? Why so many chapters dedicated to something so mundane and tedious? Now, from a practical standpoint, we kind of understand. Certainly we understand from a practical standpoint, look, you want, you're building something, okay? You want some good detailed instructions. Uh, how to build a tabernacle is important. And how many of us have ever been frustrated with those IKEA manuals? And you're like, what the, why is this person smiling in this IKEA manual? Because I can't build what they're telling me to build. Because the, the, the instructions aren't there. So clear, detailed instructions are helpful. You want to make sure you're doing it right. What's more, I think what we can glean from this, from this, these detailed instructions about the worship of God is that God doesn't simply care that he is worshipped, but also how he is worshipped. You think God doesn't care about how he is worshipped? Well, here are 13 chapters detailing that he does care exactly how he is worshipped because worship to God is not a DIY project. We worship according to his instructions. God doesn't call for creativity in his worship. I mean, there's... Creativity, but you know what I'm saying. He's not calling us to worship him according to our taste. He's not calling us to worship him according to any which way we want, our whims, our desires. No, worship with God is on the terms he proposes in the way he alone makes possible. But there's one more reason why these, there's so much here in these sections. This is all introduction, okay? This is all introduction. Um, why it's important. Why there's so much detail? Because the tabernacle is rich with theological symbolism and meaning. We'll see this morning, and I think in the weeks ahead, much of the tabernacle points us to profound gospel truths that we still very much need to hear. You can think of the tabernacle and the sacred furniture somewhat like a giant pop-up book. Uh, if you've ever, you probably haven't read a pop-up book in a long time, but you know how they work. You turn the page and this three-dimensional image kind of comes out and it helps carry the the main idea across to the readers. Uh, it's very vivid in the way that it points to the main idea of what's happening. And this is what God's doing with a tabernacle and the furniture. He's turning the pages of a pop-up book. And as each image leaps forward the storyline of God's saving grace becomes increasingly clear. So go ahead and turn your attention with me to chapter 25 in your Bibles. Exodus chapter 25, make sure you have that open in front of you. Uh, We won't need the the text this morning uh, on the screen, but you can have that open in front of you uh, on your Bibles so that you can kind of follow along. Now, verses, let's take a look at verses 1 through 9, and this is really, uh, again, this is still preface, introductory section, before we kind of get to our main points here. But follow along as I read Exodus 25, 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they, t- may, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution they shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tan ramskins, skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod, and for the breastpiece, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so sh- you shall make it. Now here we see in these, just this kind of preface, introductory materials, that he talks about these construction materials for the tabernacle. I don't think we need to over-spiritualize each of, its, of the materials. What we need to know is that they're costly items, things that are fit for a king. So it's royal metals and royal fabrics, Royal skins and the best wood available, precious gemstones for the priest's garments. Now, as an aside, all this costly material is to be given over as a free will offering. Now just think about that a little bit. It's clear that God loves a cheerful giver here, right? Do you see that in just these opening verses? You give according to your heart's desire. every man. Uh, nothing is demanded. Nothing is coerced. They aren't voluntold. They are just said, come, give. And in chapter 36, we find out that they not only give, they give more than enough. So much so that Moses had to say, stop, you're giving. It's too much. Now imagine that because it's pretty impressive given that it's a call for offering when there are no plans. These people haven't even heard of the plans yet Uh, when you usually do a building campaign you need to have blueprints displayed out in the lobby you typically need to have maybe a 3d rendering of what the building is going to look like and then right next to it is probably a thermometer saying like oh this is how much we've raised for our building plans so that you know you can see how much you're raising but here is the call for people to give freely from a heart that longs to worship. Uh, they don't need individual invitations. A general call is given. They're like, yes! I want to worship the Lord. Most important, however, I think, just focus here, is verse 8. This is the heart of the matter here. And this is the heart of chapter 25, and this is the main point of today's sermon. So if you're looking for a main point from verses 1 through 40, here's the main point. Verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. This section seems long, boring to our 21st century minds, but the underlying message is simple and straightforward. It's the Lord's three-dimensional way of saying to his people, I'm with you. I abide with you. I'm here in your midst and I will never leave you. And what do we learn about this God that never leaves us? Well, each furniture of the tabernacle tells us about who he is. What it's like to dwell with this God. First, we see three points today. First, we see the purity of God. The purity of God. Verses 10-22 to is the Ark of the Covenant, and it speaks to the purity of God. Let me read it for you. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half of its, its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings of the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth, and you shall make two cherubim of gold." Of hammered work shall you make them of the two ends of the mercy seat? Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread it out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now, if you're ever to have a building project uh, and you're to narrate how you're to do it, a blueprint, uh, this is not how you should typically begin. Normally when you start with building a home, what do you begin with? The foundation. And then maybe, I don't know, I'm not a civil engineer, but foundation, walls, room dividers, I don't know, whatever it is, a roof, plumbing, countertops, appliances, you know, are we gonna use formica or are we gonna use granite, right? And finally, very last, we think of furniture. But God starts with the furniture. He starts with the Ark of the Covenant, and for good reason, because it's the most important aspect of the tabernacle. It's the place that God is going to meet with his people. It's his throne room. You see on the screen a rendering of the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, I know, I have pictures today, I know, it's very unusual. You'll see on the screen, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark was basically a rectangular box About two and a half feet by two and a half feet and three and a half feet long. It's made of wood. It's encased in gold, and there's those four rings to carry the ark safely from place to place. Now, there's quite a bit of attention given to these rings and these poles. Why? Don't ever remove those poles. Why? No one touches the ark. You touch the ark and you die. Inside the ark, verse 16, Moses is to place the testimony. What is the testimony? The Ten Commandments. The, the, um, it's, it's the covenant documents. It's the law of God. And so all of this is speaking to holiness. All of this is speaking up to purity. In 2 Samuel 6, when the ark of the covenant is being carried along and transported, and the oxen stumble, and what happens? Uzzah puts his hand to... The ark and Uzzah made a big uh oh, right? Immediately the judgment of God breaks out against him because he touched the ark. You don't touch the ark because, yes, this God is dwelling with you, but this God is not a safe God. This God is a consuming fire, a blazing holiness. You don't trifle with God, you don't treat Him carelessly. You don't just come in and worship him in any which way you want. Otherwise, you're incinerated. Notice there are, the description in the Bible gives us these angelic figures, a cherubim in verses 17 through 22. And these figures of cherubim on the ark, uh, there's this plat, flat, ha, uh, platform of pure gold, it's translated mercy seat. It sits on top of the whole thing and these two cherubim face one another looking towards the mercy seat here and their wings are swept up over it, hiding it from view. Now those of you who are familiar with your Bibles, so far, if you've started from reading the Bible with your Bible reading plan starting in Genesis 1.1, when was the last time you encountered cherubim? Before this. Genesis. Genesis 3. And what happened in Genesis 3? There was a cherubim guarding the way back into the presence and fellowship with God. You know, we think of cherubim as these cute little angels, like chubby, with little bow and arrows during Valentine's Day shooting, shooting people. Which, anyways, it sounds strange. But anyways, it's, but that's not who they are. They are fierce guardians with swords barring entrance into the presence of God. That's who they are. Everything about the ark screams exclusion. Do not come near. Don't you dare draw near. The poles, the law, the cherubim. And from the rest of Scripture, we read that's right. No one is allowed before this throne. The only person ever allowed to enter the most holy place and come before the ark is the high priest. He can only come in only once a year. And it is only him on the day of atonement. And he would come in and there would be smoke inside the Holy of Holies as he approaches the ark, as he averts his eyes. And he would come and he would bring the blood of the Lamb. And he would sprinkle the blood on top of the mercy seat, the atonement seat, To make atonement for Israel. That the people of God may continue to dwell with God. I think the Ark of the Covenant is a shocking piece of furniture. Not simply because it talks about the purity of God. Not simply because it talks about the untouchability of God and the heinousness of our sins. But more than that. It is shocking that God makes access to himself possible. Isn't that amazing? A holy and righteous God, in the design of the ark itself, has a thing called a mercy seat. An atonement seat for atonement to be made. A covering, a means to draw near. No one deserves to be in the presence of God, but God says, I will make a way. Not many ways, but I will make a way through blood, through atonement. Here then is the purity and the condescension, I would say, of God. It is amazing, not that there aren't many ways to God, but that there is even a way to God. Or from the furnishings of the tabernacle we see the purity of God. And second, we see the provision of God. Purity in provision. Let's look at verses 23-30 and the table for bread. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and ha- uh, half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it, and you shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. You shall... And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners of its legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You can see from the screen in the next picture that the table is pretty simple. Uh, It's smaller than the ark in design. It's three feet by one and a half feet wide and about two feet high. It's kind of like a quarter of a size of this table that we have right here in front of us at the church. Like the ark, it's overlaid with gold with rings and poles to transport it. Again, this is speaking to its importance. It's always mentioned right after the Ark of the Covenant. And we also read later on that uh, between, as they're on the move, the Ark of the Covenant and the golden, and, and, the, and this golden table, uh, that they're always wrapped up in skins and, and, and cared for, speaking to its importance. We all know that when you move something, uh, the things that you don't really care about when you're moving from another, one house to another house, you kind of just toss into the the box that says miscellaneous. But if something is very important, you typically use bubble wrap around it. And you put it into like a box with you know the the foam peanuts or whatever it is, and you write fragile on the outside. And that's how you know it's something very important. But more important than the table itself is what is on the table. There are Plates and flagons, which are basically a pitcher with bowls, and most importantly, the bread of the presence. We know from Leviticus twenty-three, thirteen, that the wine is always to be full. We know from Leviticus twenty-four that the bread of the presence comprises twelve loaves, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel, on the tabletop. And once a week, this bread is to be replaced, and the bread. Uh, is um, to be consumed most likely by the priests. Now, in the ancient Near East, many supposed deities had temples built towards them, for them. Homes and temples and shrines. But there's something very different about this home for Yahweh. You see, in the ancient Near East, these so-called deities, they had a problem, an inherent problem with them. They always were very hungry. They were like starved teenage boys. And they always needed to eat, but somehow they couldn't feed themselves. And so what you would do is you would put out bread daily for these gods so that they could have something to eat. And when they would eat it, they would give it. They would bless you because you have put out the bread for them. It goes without saying that's not what's happening here with the Israelites. There's not the slightest hint that the bread was for God's sustenance. In fact, to think of such a thing would be idolatrous. It would be making God out to be, to be made in our image, I guess. But the true and living God does not need our help. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is eternally self-sufficient. So the truth is quite the opposite, and that we are quite utterly dependent upon God, actually. And that's what's going on with the bread and the table. God is saying in his holy dwelling that I'm also symbolically acting as host. That's why there are 12 loaves laid out for the 12 tribes. Why? It's what he's saying, to dwell with God in your midst is to have his promise to supply all your needs. Yes, you will be with me. And guess what? I will supply all your needs. I will give you your daily bread. The Israelites had seen God do that in their experience. They complained of hunger and thirst, and God gave them manna and water. This theme carries over into the New Testament with Jesus when he feeds the 5,000. And how many baskets are left over? Twelve baskets of bread are left over. The bread is not for God's benefit, but for Israel's. It symbolized their daily need. It was a perpetual reminder of God's providence. God says, everything you need, all the drink you need, all the housing you need, all the friends you need, all the jobs you need, all the health you need, in order to do my will, in order to glorify me, I provide it. I will never ask from you that which I will not supply. I will give you everything you need in order to live under my kingly rule. God is saying, seek my kingdom, draw near to me, live under my rule, and I will provide Purity, provision. Third, look at verses 31 through 40. With the golden lampstand, we see the presence of God. Purity, provision, and presence. Let's gird ourselves up for these last few verses here. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out on one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, on the other branch, so for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there will be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand, their calyxes and their branches shall be one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so, that, so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils, utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain." God requires a golden lampstand for the tabernacle, and we have a rendering of it again on the screen. It's basically like a menorah. And God tells Moses that there are to be six branches from a central stem, making seven lights altogether. perhaps representing the divine number of completion. Certainly the lampstand has a practical component to it. The tabernacle is a very dark place. You need some lighting in there. Okay, and so you you don't want to make you you don't want to allow the priests that are coming inside to stumble and accidentally drop things or burn themselves or whatever it might be. But notice how the lamp is decorated. We see that there's a base, a stem, cups, and calyxes. Calyxes is basically that wall, that wall that uh, that goes around uh, a budding flower, and the flames are like like in the flowers themselves and the whole thing is meant to resemble almond blossoms now one of the aims of this lamp in all its elaborate detail and artistry is that it would kind of look like a stylized tree now why are trees important Uh, first it speaks of life and fruitfulness Second, the tree is meant to remind one, I think, of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Uh, you see, the tabernacle, in one sense, is a Garden of Eden of sorts, and we'll get a chance to talk about it, hopefully, in weeks to come. But that is one of the functions of lampstand. Entering into this place symbolically and into God's presence is like returning to Eden. But let me suggest to you something a little less... Uh, I don't know what the word is, romantic, when it comes to the lampstand. In Leviticus 24, it tells us the lamp is to be kept burning all the time. It's wicks are to be trimmed and oils to be added. Once in the morning, once in the evening, the lamp is always burning. Why? Why doesn't the lamp ever go out? Because having lights on means that someone is home. We all know what it's like to go trick or Well, some of you know what it's like to go trick or treating. Um, whether your parents allow you to do that or not, please ask your parents for permission. But in, when, you, when I was a kid and I went trick or treating, you always knew. Don't go to the house with all the lights off. Why? Because no one's home and there's no candy for you to get. You just know that. We know that that's why we set timers in our home when we're away. You know, the light turns on every evening at 7.36. And why? Because it's telling you someone's home to maybe perhaps deter the thief. So yes, I think the lamp was to represent fruitfulness and the tree of life. But every night, think about this. Every night when the children of God would walk back to their tents and look at the tabernacle, they would see a light there. They could lay their heads down and rest, knowing that God is with them. He's home. He's there. That's the point of chapter 25, isn't it? God is holy and he is here. God dwells among his people. He says, I'm setting up a tent among you because I want to be with you and I want to be beside you. I want to be around you. I wonder if any of you have heard anyone say to you, I don't want to be around you. Maybe your parents have said, I don't have time right now. I got to do work. Or I got to be on my phone. Or the company you interview with says, we don't need you here. Or the family member or spouse says, I just can't be around you right now. Or there are those friendships where you feel like you're merely being tolerated. That's not who God is. He draws near and fellowships with his people. God in his holiness says, Yes, you have sinned. You have rejected me. You've thought little about me, your creator. And for that, you deserve an eternal separation from me. And not only eternal separation from me, you deserve an eternity in hell. But I've made a way for you to be in my presence where you belong. And God says, ultimately, I give you my son, Jesus. Very God of very God. To be your great high priest. My son will enter into the holy places, not with the blood of goats and bulls, but with his own very own blood. By means of his own blood. Jesus, my son, will be the atonement for your sins, that you might receive mercy, that you might come before this throne of grace and have full access. Because Jesus is the bread of life. And whoever comes to him shall not hunger, and whoever believes in him shall never thirst. And Jesus is the light of the world. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. I hope you see that with the coming of Christ, that there is no more need for the tabernacle and these furniture items. I hope you see that the ark, the table, the lampstand, all of these were mere pop-up pictures pointing to the fulfillment found in Jesus. And if you repent, meaning if you turn back to God and place your faith in the work that Jesus Christ has done on your behalf, the Holy Spirit dwells with you. You become the temple of God by which the Spirit resides and never leaves. And Christ, the Spirit of Christ, says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always to the end of the age. I will abide with you. I am the friend that's going to stay closer than a brother. You see, God doesn't just want our obedience. He wants our fellowship. God doesn't want your conformity, but also your communion. Not just your duty, but your delight. Not just sticking to the rules, but sticking close to him. Our transcendent God is an imminent God, meaning he's both other and near, near to his people. Yes, we should come before him with reverence and fear, and at the same time, we know he hears our singing and our prayers, and our worship, and he speaks to us in his word. God doesn't simply tolerate you. God loves you and abides with you, Christian. And I pray that as a church together that we would continue to taste and feel and realize the reality of God more and more more of the reality of God more directly more authentically even more terrifyingly and more intimately with our risen Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven we thank you for uh, this morning and uh, for us to behold some of these images that you lay out for us pointing us ultimately to your son. Uh, Yes, you were enthroned between the cherubim, but now you make your dwelling place not only among men in Jesus Christ, but you indwell all your sons and daughters with your very presence. Father, may we take comfort in that truth and may it be an ever-increasing reality in our lives to taste more of and to feel more of you and to know you with great joy. And to come, in, no matter what circumstance we are, we are in, to come into your courts with gladness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.